1: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, this is John McCurley, the oral historian at the University of Iowa Labor Center and a faculty member in the UI Center for Human Rights. Today I'm joined by Professor Christy Nabhan-Warren, who is the VO and Elizabeth Call Figgy Chair in Catholic Studies in the UI's Departments of Religious Studies and Gender, Women's and Sexuality Studies. She also has appointments in the Departments of History and Rhetoric. We're here to talk about her new book, Meatpacking America, How Migration, Work, and Faith Unite and Divide the Heartland, published by the University of North Carolina Press. Christy, thanks for being with us here today.
0: Thanks for having me, John.
1: The place that I wanted to start actually was with place because, you know, I have the sense that a lot of people who, especially people who aren't Iowans, don't really know what I was like and sort of have this imaginary giant cornfield in their heads. And, uh, you know, it's much more complex, right? We've got m- at least medium sized to almost large cities, lots of what you might call micropolitan cities, lots of small towns, and then lots of rural places. And your work really interestingly, you know, moves between some of those different places. And I wonder if you could situate us for a moment and talk about how place matters in your work and what you learned about Iowa and the Midwest as a place.
0: Yeah, I mean, there were a lot of reasons why I wrote this book. I think, for one, I'm a lifelong Midwesterner. I was born in Gary, Indiana in 1970. So I'm from the urban sort of Rust Belt, you know, steel mill, uh, Gary, Indiana, and the surrounding communities. And also being, you know, intrigued, but also bothered by the tropes, you know, the way in which the Midwest has been. Characterize, mischaracterize, and in particular, tropes that I know you're fully aware of, John, as a scholar yourself and as a Midwesterner, you know, that we're just a flyover place. You just kind of hurry up and drive through, uh, if you're lucky, stop at some rest stops or fly over on your way to somewhere supposedly more interesting and cosmopolitan and, and edgy. And so I wrote this book for a lot of reasons. As a lifelong Midwesterner, someone for whom place has always mattered to me, and as a scholar, I've always wanted to understand more deeply where I happen to live. And so when I was in graduate school in Arizona State in the early 90s, I wanted to understand the Latino part of Phoenix. And I wanted to understand Borderlands issues, which definitely informed my first two book projects very much because the Southwest was very new to me as a Midwesterner. And now, since I've been back in the Midwest since 2001, I lived in Illinois for a while when I taught at Augustana College and now since 2012 uh, in Iowa. And so I literally started, as you know, most ethnographers would do, perhaps oral historians too, I just started driving around once I landed here, trying to understand the state by just really driving around, talking to people and trying to figure out what story there was that I wanted to tell, what compelling story did I see on the news? Did I hear in conversations? And as someone with a Catholic studies position, it was really important to me because in part, my position is funded by lay Catholics here in the state. I wanted to do something that would take Catholic migration and faith and work seriously. Those are always the sort of intersections, the vectors that have always been interesting to me as a human and as a scholar work, religion, and migration, because I saw it in my own family, a mixed ethnic, mixed religious family in Northwest Indiana for whom the steel mills and peddling fruit was a livelihood. And so as I started to hang out in some rural parishes and micropolitan and small city parishes, what became clear to me that. Religious places are one sort of frontline place that we can really understand changing migration patterns in the state. And I also make an argument in the book of the larger Midwest as well. There are a lot of folks coming to the Midwest from all over the world, primarily to work and to have grass and to have nice yards and clean air, places where they can raise their families. And so after I had conducted well over 100 interviews, mostly in Catholic parishes, mom and pop diners parks on park benches while moms would watch their kids running around and inside parishioners' homes. It also became clear that most of the folks I interviewed, Catholic and non-Catholic alike, worked in meatpacking plants. And there, the story continued to unfold. We think of, right, one of the tropes is that I was just unredeemably white. And it's white in a very particular way. So I wanted to unpack the whiteness. And I wanted to challenge these perceptions of whiteness. Because in these packing plants, they're incredibly dynamic ethnic and racial spaces. And so I, you know, I wanted to understand the Midwest more deeply, in particular Iowa, and then the next step was what do places of work tell us about the Midwest and the global Midwest, where the Midwest and Iowa in particular stand in relation to the rest of the world? And so, you know, the project kept growing in some ways. It's like, oh my God, this is like getting out of control. But it, it was very exciting because I kept realizing that with each component moving from the parish to the workplace, I think gives us a, a really rich deep dive into what's going on in places like Iowa that very much push back against popular half-baked hot takes. If if you want to say, this book is very much a cold take. Let's step back after years of research and what's really going on in places like Iowa.
1: Well, I want to dig into it a little bit more deeply there in the sense that I want to stay away from the work. I'm going to get to the workplace and the parish in just a sec. But (laughs) but, but like I say, I'm interested in the surroundings of those places. For example, like you might have a place like Columbus Junction or like Ottumwa, you know, which has several thousand people, but then is surrounded by these smaller places that might have 200 or 300 or even smaller. Right. And then and then, of course, you have true farms, which are both households and businesses. Mm -hmm. And it seems to me like that Iowa operates in this kind of weird middle ground between all of those kinds of places. And so one of the struggles, it seems to me, to be like, what is Iowa? Where is Iowa? You know, how do you find it in order to talk about it? And, you know, how did you answer that question for yourself?
0: That's such a great question. So yeah, now that you asked that, I'm like, I didn't really address place as much as you wanted in the first question. So let me get to the place. I mean, I think that the example you just gave us is, is an excellent one. So Columbus Junction, you mentioned Columbus Junction. That was one of the, my primary field sites and that's where Tyson is located. So the vast majority of Inhabitants of Columbus Junction, Latinos, Burmese, some Vietnamese, and some white ethnics work at the packing plant. In many ways, we could say that the packing plant is the economic lifeblood of the town, for better or worse, right? It's it's also polluting the place, right? The things that go into the air, the waste that goes into the soil, the chemicals that are on the bodies of the workers. And so in terms of plays, what was so compelling to me about Columbus Junction is that it's just nestled. It's, you know, about 45 minutes south of Iowa City. It's a lovely drive down there. It's kind of in the middle of nowhere, but it happens to have been on a railroad, a railroad line. So Columbus Junction, in contrast to Columbus City, which was not that far away, thrived because it was on the railroad and there was industry such as Tyson and before it, Iowa Beef Packers, IBP. And so you've got this little town, this quaint little town with a downtown and less than a mile outside of this little town, you have... The Tyson plant. And as soon as you step out of this quaint little town with little diners, Burmese restaurant where you can get a dish with fresh green tea leaves, or where you can get a really great enchiladas and tostadas, less than a mile away, you've got this plant and you smell it as you approach it. Across the street from the Tyson plant, which is on your right, if you're driving from downtown Columbus Junction. You have what's called hogwash, which I took a lot of pictures of on my phone. Literally, the trucks, after they unload the sows, they go there to have their waste-filled, fecal matter-filled trucks. So there's all kinds of smells. So you move from smelling delicious foods to smelling waste and smelling all of the odors that, that are permeating the air. And then you've got the river, and whether or not the company wants to admit it, waste product is emitted into the waterways on a daily basis. And so you've got these beautiful spaces, these, these profane spaces, these really gross spaces all in one. And, you know, I got to know Adela, who runs the New York Dollar Store, which is downtown Columbus Junction. And, and so many of the owners of the shops in downtown are former workers of Tyson. And it was their Dream to be able to leave the packing plant to open up their own business, and so it's fascinating to talk with folks like Adela, who's you know this tiny tiny Mexicana. And her business, like most of the businesses downtown, is catering to the workers. Uh, remittances are sent there. You know, a lottery tickets are bought there. Special foods are imported by Adela for um, the families who work at Tyson and after their shift shop there. So these are really fascinating towns. And when you drive in, I know I assumed I would see a lot of white folks, right? Because I had passed through the cornfields. But what I saw and what I heard, were Guatemalan dialects. I think one was Kanjobal, which I don't speak, but I, I I've picked up a little bit in understanding. And then you know Mexicano Spanish, you know English, Vietnamese, uh, Hakka Chin, Burmese. And so at the packing plant itself, if you have, if you're able to get access, when you walk back, there are like 15 different signs saying welcome in different languages. So it's like, this is not Iowa white, right? And so these places, much like Atumwa and Marshalltown, which are much more Latino, the, the Latino presence there is also very prevalent you know, you go to these towns and your perceptions are just completely rocked. And I love what you said about this weird middle ground, right? Because you have farmers wearing their Carhartt overalls and jackets. You have like, really teeny tiny Latinas, you know, walking and speaking Kanjo ball and, and Spanish. And it's just like, you know, rarely do you see this interaction, even in like big cities and like very concentrated spaces. And so I think that spaces like Marshalltown, Atumwa, even West Liberty, places where we see packing plants off, you know, in Iowa are really dynamic ethnic racial spaces like that. I, I would make an argument that we don't get that even that intensity when you walk in Manhattan or when you walk down like Michigan Avenue in Chicago.
1: Yeah, I think that's a really powerful observation that, as I say, you know, is often missed by people who don't live here that, you know, you just look at the total numbers. If you look at the percentages of, you know, quote unquote, white people, and it gives you a profoundly misleading sense of what relationships sometimes are actually like. Well, so I'm going to sort of shift then or actually maybe sort of drill down a bit because again you know one of the things that i think as someone who has interviewed meat packing workers but through a labor lens primarily with people who work in meat packing is that You show us how the meatpacking plant, you know, as you kind of hinted there, is connected to small business, but is also connected, and I think this is one of the things that people really miss a lot, is the way it's connected, not just, of course, to farm labor in the fields, but also to things like egg production, you know, which is maybe one of the most invisible forms of labor that's happening, but again, nobody's talking about. And so, um, you know, I wonder if you could talk again about kind of that ecosystem of labor, that you encountered?
0: Yeah, I love that ecosystem of labor. Yeah, there's all kinds of ecologies really bumping up against each other. Yeah, and so there's a term in the industry called vertical integration, right? I, I, know, I know you're familiar with that, John. So when the packing plants uh, move from places like the Chicago Stockyards and Cincinnati, formerly known as sort of Porkopolis, Two rural spaces in Iowa, Kansas, Nebraska, you know, 60s, 70s, 80s, and we had the deunionization. It wasn't, you know, happenstance at these sort of red, red states, what became right to work states. Absolutely. So when we saw that shift from urban to rural spread out, what we had is like you've got the corn that's grown. Well, you got the seeds that are made by Monsanto and Cargill and other companies, right? Like the big three or the big two, right? And then you have that corn that's grown, that's bought and grown the seeds by the farmers that feeds the sows and the black Angus steer that make their way to Iowa Premium Beef and, and Tama. You've got the egg candling, you've got the egg laying, CAFOs, confined animal feeding operations. Sows and eggs are, I guess, Piglets and eggs are grown, laid in these confined animal feeding operations. These aren't free range, as you know, and they're just really troubling places. There's a lot of smells going back to place. It's kind of hard to find these cafos. I remember I was driving around with my 15-year-old, now 15-year-old, trying to take some pictures for the book and they're they're kind of hidden you and then when you when you come up against them there was an egg laying cafo there were these armored trucks and you know it was like a gated community and you We knew we were on the trail when we saw feathers flying everywhere and we smelled, you smelled it. It was horrific. And we circled it many times. And one of these, like, it was like a Brinks-like truck was following us after a while. And I got really, really skittish thinking like, oh my God, I'm going to be pulled over maybe arrested. I'm taking pictures. So, I mean, you've got these like hidden places, hidden workers, right? Whose labor is not seen. And as we know, you know, from reading all the great scholarship and going back to Upton Sinclair's work, right, the jungle, when meat slaughter was in the inner cities, it was much more open. I mean, it was also not up to code in a lot of ways and just truly disgusting and and bacteria-ridden. I would say contemporary meatpacking plants have definitely changed, the ones that I toured. But everything's hidden now, whereas things used to be more open and more seen. So, Workers and their bodies are hidden and unseen. And I make an argument in the book that they are also fungible commodities. They are seen as fungible commodities and treated as fungible commodities, much like the eggs, the chickens, the sows, the cows, the steer. So basically, from before insemination and birth and growth of the corn, the animals, everything is linked. So you've got towns like Washington, Iowa, which is a producer town where the animals are fed and raised, they supply the processing towns. So the producer towns tend to be better off. They tend to have more environmental standards. They tend to be wealthier. Um, There tends to be sort of a white elite class sort of running the town. But when you get to a place like Columbus Junction and Tama, these are poorer places. These are places that are, they're, they're packers, you know? And so there's definitely a If we want to call it a caste system, but very much like a class caste system that emerges as a result of all these different nodes of production.
1: Let's move to your expertise in religion. One of the things that I think some readers might be surprised at is the way you open the book. I thought the first chapter was particularly interesting in the sense that you know you you start with these Catholic and Protestant white farmers and uh... you know take us back well well back into the late nineteenth and early twentieth century to set the stage And, you know, as a historian of Iowa, one of the things that I thought was very interesting, but again, sort of maybe just sort of teased out a little in the book, was the long tension within Iowa between Protestants and Catholics, right? Which I think, again, is something that people probably don't know unless they are Iowans and sort of can see some of the still sort of lingering elements of that. And there's been some really interesting recent work on the way that... The main political expression of that tension in Iowa, which was prohibition and anti-prohibition politics, goes away essentially in the late '60s, early '70s, and you, you know, you start to see some very important political realignments, which are continue to be with us today, in the the shift away from these primary tensions between Protestants and Catholics and the formation of some current political alignments. I I just kind of wonder where you, to what extent you saw some of the echoes of these old Mm -hmm. tensions and where you saw, um, again, one of the main themes of your book, which is this sort of coming together and how that happened.
0: You know my spouse is a historian. And so he's always such a great reader because this book very much reflects my training as a social a historian of religion in the United States, but also as an ethnographer. So I was duly trained in grad school and I'm really grateful for that. But my my real love, my real methodological love is ethnography. And so a lot of interviews and stories, but I do believe very strongly that the very best ethnographies must be historically contextualized. And as you know, as a historian, as a historian of Iowa, Continuity and change are two of the big things that historians look at. And so I wanted to start with Corinne Hargrafen's story. Even before her, I have Rosa, a woman I met, a migrant who's coming over. I wanted to have the bookends of two Latinas, one coming and one staying. So that was sort of the framing as, you know, it's always hard. Like, how are we going to structure a book? So I decided I wanted to structure it by a story of coming. And we, we have a lot of books like that, you know, humming and migrating. But I, I wanted to end with Arena's story at the end, and so I thought it was important to start with Karen Hargrave's story, and to start with her experience and her experience of poverty and. And being, you know, a, a very devout Catholic and experiencing some, you're right, I, there's a teaser in there that she experienced some anti-Catholicism, but I, I don't delve into it too deeply for sure. So I wanted to start with Corinne's story. And I think the, the reason, one of the reasons why I started with her story too, is that I think on a personal level, I'm a big believer that we all have so many commonalities linking us. But as I was you know, conducting all these interviews, I mean, the stories from the white ethnics, you know, the German and Irish Catholics who would consider themselves white. Now, but they're very proud of their Irish German heritage. Their stories of their parents or their grandparents coming over, the poverty, hand sewing clothes, having outhouses, not having a lot, it was very similar. I mean, there were a lot of similar strands to the stories of the more recent migrants and refugees I was collecting stories from. You know, just like working really hard, not having any extras, but being really proud of how hard they worked and also how church, in this case, the Catholic parish, was a really important place. So speaking about place, how parish and parish boundaries became such an integral part of their story about who they are, what community they belong to. And so um, whether we're talking about Corinne Hargrafen, who's now in her... Uh, late nineties, she's doing great. She's a wonderful woman. Whether we're talking about Corinne Hargrafen or we're talking about Rena, a more recent Guatemalan migrant who speaks Kanjubal Spanish and English, Spanish is sort of the language that we were able to speak together, you know, very, very similar stories. And so that was one of the reasons why I told this story, uh, why I started with her story. And most certainly there are still tensions But what I really picked up on and ran with more in the book, what was what was Talked about more was ecumenical connections. And so the priests that I feature in the book that I worked closely with, for example, Father Joseph Sia, who's the former parish priest uh, at St. Joseph's and Columbus Junction and West Liberty, he's now with the diocese in Davenport. And Father Trevino is now at, with West Liberty and Columbus Junction. But Father Joseph is one I really worked very closely with. And he, like other priests, in these rural areas, who serve parishes that are predominantly Latino, Spanish speaking, they work. So, whether we're talking about Washington, Iowa, Iowa City, West Liberty, Columbus Junction, Ottumwa, Marshalltown, all of the priests in these areas work with Lutheran, Methodist, Baptist, in some cases, Jehovah's Witness communities. Uh, because they're very pro-immigrant in Columbus Junction, for example, Father Joseph has worked with ministers in this ministerial alliance organization. When they hear word of mouth that there might be an ice raid, they work together to inform their parishioners, their folks who go to their church. Because whether we're looking at at St. Joseph the Worker, Catholic parish in Columbus Junction, or we're looking at the Burmese Methodist Church, or also Burmese go to the Baptist Church there. We're looking at the Presbyterian Church, um, whatever church we're talking about, the Pentecostal church, we have vulnerable people, whether they're documented or undocumented, right? And so, what was really heartening to me, and in terms of like the human rights, there's a really strong social justice component to the ecumenical Alliance. And that's something that I saw. And if you look at other small towns, postville, for example, the 2008 ice raid, I know you know so much about it too. I mean, that was new to me when I when I moved you know to Iowa. We also saw these ecumenical alliances. So whenever we've seen an ice raid or we see uh, you know like anti-immigration rhetoric creeping in, we see ministers, not all, but I would say the majority in a lot of these small places, banding together to say, hey, These are hardworking people who are working hard for America. They're doing jobs that nobody else wants to do. Give them respect, you know, give them their due justice. And so that was very heartening. I think that banding together, I mean, there are still differences, right? Theological differences. But what I heard talked about and what I saw with my own eyes is whatever theological disagreements there might be over transubstantiation, consubstantiation, or some of those old theological debates, right? those really have taken a backseat in many places to more pressing contemporary issues that have to do with human rights.
1: That's a wonderful segue into Segway. my next question, yes, especially since, you know, this conversation is sponsored by the UI Center for Human Rights. I was curious about to what extent you heard people talk self-consciously sort of in a kind of rights language in a kind of in a way in which they were defining their goals and aspirations and work in a rights language. And one more sort of wrinkle to this I'll ask. You know, we, of course, have a powerful rights language around freedom of religion, say, for example, but in the American tradition, not arguably not quite as well defined a workers' rights tradition, right, like in some other countries. But, you know, other places do have more well-defined ways of talking about workers' rights. And, and I wonder to what extent you heard those things expressed and the kinds of r- rhetorics deployed, particularly in maybe some novel ways because of those connections between workplace and faith that you explore.
0: Uh, in fact, I'm going to probably do a follow-up article soon that I can share with you in the audience about exactly this. So all the field work for this book was done before COVID. And I have in sort of the last chapter a bit about it, but a lot has been happening since COVID, since COVID hit the packing plant, since the packing plants didn't respond well, we can say hey, <laughs> to workers' rights. And so- Many of my interlocutors I interviewed, I'm thinking Columbus Junction more specifically because I did so many interviews. That was really a primary field site, whether it was Abby, who's a parishioner there at the, at the Catholic parish who works in a retirement home, a nursing home. She said, you know, we work really hard and we give money to church. We give to this country and she has experienced a lot of racism. People will randomly come up to her and say, where are you from? Why are you here? And just really rude sort of in your face racism. And she has brought up during our several interviews, we had, you know, just how her parents migrated here when she was a baby and how she's been here her whole life and how she, you know, she works hard and she's American and she has A right to live free from prejudice. And that she, and she made a really fascinating observation that I that did make its way into the book that it's Brown and black women and Asian women who are taking care of the elderly white in the United States. And she's like these folks, she said, I take care of, I never see their families. She's like, I take care of them. We take care of them here. We are caregivers. You know, she wants more respect. She's actually demanding more respect. And Fernando, who I got to know really well, too, who's been at the Tyson plant for many, many years. Yes, absolutely. Talks about the the difficulty of the work he does, the packing and how important it is and how he has a right to live in a racist free, but, you know, he has struggled. He has been the victim of racism now, because neither of the plants I worked at are unionized and folks were careful, even when, you know, most of the interviews took place outside of the packing plant. When I was in the packing plants, I was able to have interviews, but it was mostly observation. And when I did my week-long training at Iowa Premium Beef, I was on the line. I wasn't allowed to cut, but there were conversations with workers, but most of the conversations took outside of the packing plants. But since the field work, like organizations such as Iowa CCI has been helping workers organize and all of these organizing meetings to see about potentially having a union in Tyson have been taking places in Catholic parishes. So West Liberty's St. Joseph, there's a lot of St. Joseph's in Iowa. So St. Joseph's parish in West Liberty is one of the sites of this grassroots organizing that Iowa CCI is helping to cultivate also Columbus Junction at St. Joseph, the worker there. And so something that I'm really interested in doing is I've gone to a city council meeting and spoke on behalf uh, of CCI and, and pro workers, excluded workers. But what I'm seeing and what I'm really interested in finding out is if this is being replicated across the state, early signs of unionization. And what will we see, will this be successful in states like Iowa and similar states like meatpacking states like North Carolina, but I'm heartened by that. I'm heartened by sort of these activist priests working with organizations that are pro worker. And it seems like the consensus is from what I can tell so far is that it has to come from the workers. There has to be buy-in. And so I'm heartened by this. And, you know, very personally, I'd like to see unions at at these plants. I think that we need to see unions and I probably don't say this as, as strongly in the book, but I'm from a very pro-union family. I'm from a very pro-union town, Gary, Indiana. And uh, although in lately that's waned a little bit in Gary, I mean, it went, it went for Trump in the last election. But, but yeah, I mean, I'm seeing stirrings of this. And again, we're getting a lot of partnerships, what we want to call them ecumenical partnerships between the people themselves, groups like Iowa CCI and members of the
1: church hierarchy. And once again, that that's a wonderful segue into my next question, which was, you know, how this, the work on this book, how it's changed you perhaps, or definitely what direction you are beginning to move with your own work as a result of having written this book?
0: I think all of my books, so this is my third book. Ethnography, my third big book, they've all sort of led to the next. And so when I came to this book, I mean, I had a steep learning curve. I had never really studied, you know, the farm crisis. I'd never really studied the meat packing plant industry. I'm a longtime vegetarian. So this was a very, <laughs> you know, difficult uh, project in a lot of ways. Touring the packing plants was very difficult for me physically, existentially, um, for a lot of reasons. But I think that. Issues of work, migration, and faith have always been interests of mine that have really pervaded all of my. Work and on a very personal level, I'm from a lower middle class, working class, white ethnic family from Gary. You know, we moved to a white flight community when I was in fourth grade. And so I grew up hearing all kinds of stories about unionizing and labor and white flight and religion. And, you know, I've thought about this a lot. I think I'd like to put out an article, maybe some op eds. I think op eds are really great ways for academics to be a public presence and to really draw on our own research. I'd like to go to more meetings and speak on behalf of workers. It was really a really exciting. I was really nervous about it. It was the first time I was at a city council meeting, identifying myself. And I opened up by identifying myself in Spanish because it was really important. Most of the folks there were Latinos and there were a couple of translators. Emily Sinwell is a wonderful translator. She's one of the co-founders of Catholic Worker here in town. She's just a wonderful human being. But nobody on the council meeting was really translating things. And so it was really important for me to start speaking in Spanish, saying, I'm a scholar. This is the work that I do. Listen to workers, value workers. The scholarship supports every single thing you're hearing here today. And so I think that as scholars, I'm feeling even more responsibility now to share the work that I've done and maybe... Do some stuff with public policy. I mean, anything to put the work that we're doing into praxis. And, you know, that's not how I was trained at all. I was trained to, like, you know, write books and scholarship, put it out there. And so, honestly, John, I'm very new at navigating all this. On a local level, I'd really like to post Meatpacking America, draw from the book. I'd like to give some of the proceeds to our local Catholic worker house and also Tyson in Columbus Junction for like a scholarship for, uh, maybe something I could do every year there. That's something that I'm working with. I'm actually having coffee with someone who's part of the HR there next week about that. And so those are pragmatic things that we can do. I think in terms of like my scholarship, you know, maybe it's cause I'm middle-aged, I'm getting like really reflective these days, but, um, I really want to go back to Gary and do the next book. I want to do something on steel mills, migration, and faith. And I've, I've even been toying with a working title, Going Back to Indiana, which was, you know, one of the refrains in the Jackson 5 song. My family's all still there. I'm one of the few who's ever moved out. You know, everyone's still there. The nab hands, the Zulkowskis, and family members who all worked at the mill and still do. And so I think I'd like to continue this investigation into work, industry, faith and hopefully have some tours of the steel mill. So not that I want to do like meat packing in America and Gary, but substitute the steel mills for the packing, but but something on this line of exploring these intersections in the ways that I do in this project.
1: That makes me wanna to ask another question that a follow-up question that I think will be interesting to some of the people who would listen to this program because i think it's something that we're all wrestling with uh, th- those of us who are part of the academy and then we're in this moment where for a variety of reasons whether or not we come to our work with a activist or engaged lens whatever descriptor you want to to use there in many ways we're i think mo- many of us or most of us are, are finding that we increasingly have to engage in ways that perhaps are unusual or uncomfortable for us as a profession right you know we operate with within the walls of our institutions, yeah. and it's often difficult for us to, to get out. And, I mean, of course, the anthropologists, the oral historians maybe are a little bit more familiar with this work because it's, it's so much a part of what we do. But I just, I wonder if you, I wonder what, you, what your thoughts are about the changes in the professions and yeah. sort of, you know, how we institutionalize this, how we build it into graduate education, how we mm-hmm. transform our professions around these new demands.
0: That's the million dollar question. I think that's an excellent question. I've long felt like my good friend and colleague at Northwestern, Sarah McFarland Taylor, has this phrase edge walker that I've always really liked. I've always been an edge walker, I feel like in academia and in the communities I work in. So I'm not from an academic home. I'm first gen on my mom's side. I never really felt like I fit in grad school. I, I, you know, I didn't have parents who were professors. I felt like I had to really prove myself, my intelligence. And so I, and I've thought about this a lot because I think that where I come from has really shaped my, not only who I am, of course, but my scholarship. I tend to work in marginalized communities. I think I'm drawn to marginalized people, maybe because I never felt like I fully fit anywhere. I didn't really fit in my hometown. I couldn't wait to get out, but now I can't wait to go back and you know explore like this place that made me in so many ways. You know, I think that the way that I was trained, maybe much like you were trained, John too, we haven't really talked about this you and I before, but I mean, I was trained to just write very academicy stuff, and you know, to write very theoretical work. And I've really pushed back against it. I don't really write that way. I, I write what I hope are very accessible books because I work with people who who don't have a high school degree, or who might have a high school degree, but for whom college is not an option for whatever reason, for many reasons, right? If I do the theory work, that's usually in like academic articles that only academics are going to read, right? So I I like to do that stuff, but that's like fun stuff. I think for me, the books and this book is a way that I can get this out in the community. So yeah, I was not trained to do this. And in fact, my mentor, who's an amazing scholar, Bob Orsi, has himself been very cautious about doing publicly engaged scholarship. And I understand why, but I think my generation and the students that I'm training, that we're training, I think we have to train them to be publicly engaged. And, you know, for example, now there's two dissertation abstracts that candidates have to write. One's the public abstract, one's the academic. And I think we should just get rid of the academic one. Just let's just have the public abstract. I mean, why have two, right? And so in all of my graduate seminars, I'm teaching one now, which is actually work, religion, and migration. It's the only seminar I've ever taught that really taps into like my research area. Usually they're broader themes, but the students are writing an op-ed and two of them have already gotten published. One in The Guardian, my student Osamaman Eduvier Oba, has hers in The Guardian. And another, um, Hillary's, is in Press Citizen. And I think that op-eds are a really great way us to have our grad students who were are training to put their voice out there. You know, it's like 300, 400, 500 words. They're short, they're concise. So I think that having our students do more short form writing in more publicly facing venues, really working with them on writing every single class period I have with my grad students. We talk about writing. We workshop writing. Writing is a really important part of how I train my grad students. If And I say, if we're not understanding it the first time we read it, that means we need to clarify it. And so for me, it's like, let's teach our grad students how to write clearly, how to write concisely, not to let theory. Theory is great but not to let theory speak for our interlocutors or speak for us. I think that's a, that's an easy way to hide behind and to mask our own voices and to our interlocutors' voices. So I think the way that I train my grad students definitely built on the way I was trained in terms of like compassion and understanding for my students and always supporting them. But in terms of assignments and how I'm training my students, And I want my students to not see themselves as scholars compartmentalizing, right? I bring my whole self to my scholarship as a parent, as a partner, as someone who's involved in the community, who supports small businesses, who's helped a dear Ethiopian friend uh, get her food business started, you know, her made-to-order food business. I think... All of that comes through in my work. And I think the way that we were trained primarily by men, by, by white cis hat men and nothing against white cis hat men, but that's who I was trained by. And I think that even women who train me were taught to compartmentalize things. Don't talk about the fact that they have kids. Don't talk about the fact that you went to a city council meeting and spoke on. Um, let's talk about all that. Let's talk about how that's messy. And let's bring that into our scholarship because, you know, the only way we're going to get street cred in the communities that we study, you know, is if we do these things and we bring our whole selves to our work, it makes us more vulnerable, but I'm all for that. And so that's how I'm trying to train not only my grad students in religious studies, but those students in sociology and history and other departments who come to work with me in anthropology, bringing our whole selves to our work and not shying away from that.
1: I think that is just about the strongest statement we could end on. So, so Christy, I, I'm so grateful to you for writing this book. I think it, it, it really fills such an important role in the scholarship and also, as you say, in the public conversation. And so I, I really hope that this conversation gets more people reading it and talking about it. And I look forward to what you write in the future.
0: Thanks so much, John. It means a lot coming from you, and you are an Iowa historian, and I just it means a lot to me that you that you took away something from this book. and thank you so much.